This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is a return guest, or rather a a guest from the former iteration of this show back when it was Dear Prudence. Kate Duffy is back in the studio, a licensed clinical social worker who has worked as a therapist and clinical supervisor in a variety of settings, including shelters, residential group homes, and outpatient clinics. Kate, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Danny. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am thrilled to see you again. I'm especially thrilled because I remembered this time, last time I had you on the show, admittedly, that was when the show was Dear Prudence and we answered more questions uh, per episode. But I also was thinking like, okay, social worker, I should get, you know, all the questions that I think require like a social worker's eye. (laughs) So you and I had one of the most sort of severe hours that I can remember. Like there was biting. Oh, yeah. There was neighbors like potentially abusing their kids. It was it was heavy. It was bleak. Yeah, it was uh it was pretty uh it was pretty rough there for a minute. I think we we like ended up in a good place, but I do remember us both feeling like we had just run 10 marathons and then like a stranger had peed on us in the street or something. Like something terrible just happened. I mean, <laughs> not to out myself as a piss freak, but definitely one of those things sounds way more fun to me than the other. But thank you for outing me as a piss freak. That, you know, why not get started that way? We're already doing better than last time. We also um, are doing better than last time because if I remember correctly, when we recorded that last episode, you were in your closet and it was too hot for you to function and you were so cranky. All of that sounds true. <laughs> and we had really tough letters. Uh, so you were a cranky old man in your own words. So Wow. Yeah, yeah. that is absolutely true. Um, we have come a long way since then. <laughs> I'm sitting in my very own living room, not too far away from the air conditioning. Beautiful. Um, and uh, I'm so happy thanks for, for calling you. me out, I suppose. <laughs> I'm sorry. But no, we... We do have, a, a, you know, as as is often the case, we do have some like challenging or, or thorny questions to to get to today. But some of them are are also, you know, more interesting than distressing. Uh, yeah. And no one's getting bit, which is just a real high watermark as far as I'm concerned. If no one's getting bit, then I feel uh, more at peace than I did last time. Because people should not bite each other unless it's a consensual, so... As always, yeah, the, the caveat can always be, if you are a bite freak, by all means, uh, go for it. But <laughs> you're a yeah, just generally, and or bite freak, uh, it must be consensual. Probably better not to mix the two, if only because of the possibility of, like, infections. But again, I'm sure there are ways that you could, like, call a nurse hotline and try to figure out the safest way to go about doing it. So We're, like, really going off the rails right now. Listen, I go where the spirit leads me. And the spirit is leading me to cut this shit down. Why don't you go ahead and read our first letter and I will stop uh, going on tangents. I would be delighted. Uh, The subject of this letter is foregoing blood ties. 
I was abused and neglected as a child. My mom had addiction and mental health issues, and she kept my brother and I isolated from most of our extended family, especially my father's side. I'm now in my 30s, and I don't speak to anyone in my mom's family, although I have re-engaged a bit with my dad and some of his relatives. He can't seem to understand that I don't have close relationships with his siblings and their kids. He's constantly bringing them into our conversations, asking me what I think of their life choices, whether I'm up on the latest in their careers, if I'm attending their cross-country weddings, or if I have read their recently self-published books. I have tried saying, I don't really know what these cousins are doing in their careers, I haven't spoken to them since the family reunion in 1992, or I wasn't invited to that wedding, probably because I've only met that person once. And his reaction is often one of disbelief and hurt. He's advised me to put more time into these relationships, emphasizing that we, quote, only have one family. I just don't see it that way. I escaped my abusive home and made a family of my own. This is where I want to focus my energy. These are the relationships I want to nurture. Frankly, I'm offended that my dad can't seem to remember any of my chosen family's names, despite the fact that I have orchestrated many opportunities for him to meet and get to know them. What advice do you have for communicating to an aging boomer that I just don't care about my cousins? I really appreciate the aging boomer. Yeah, and just like specifically, it's aging boomer and cousins. Like nothing else. Like we don't need to litigate anything else. It's just cousins and an aging boomer. Yeah, and I'm the aging boomer hits deep, uh, as as the youths would say, because uh, I think that's you know generationally, if you're in your 30s or your late 20s, that's a lot of people in your family, probably, especially parents. And uh, as we know, boomers have some pretty gnarly beliefs about a lot of things. Depends certainly can depend upon the individual boomer but yeah of course in this case, i don't it's... i do not mean to uh disparage all boomers but um you know i i think it's like pretty pretty widely known that you know for for those of us who have boomers as parents or as like older family members that you know just like any generation before you uh people have always learned really uh kind of garbage stuff about <laughs> things for at least you know from family to work to education <laughs> You're laughing at me for saying garbage stuff. No, no, no. I just, yeah, I like the sweeping generalization. Like, listen, people have always learned garbage stuff. And I think well, that's, that's actually true. quite true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you get this sense reading this letter? And it may just be that we don't get to find this out. Um, how present the letter writer's father may have been while they were growing up. Like, it wasn't clear to me if it was yeah. like, my mom abused me and my dad was present, but sort of unable to help or unwilling to help, or Mm -hmm. my parents split up and my mom had custody and isolated and neglected us. And my father either maybe didn't know about some of this or wasn't able to do much. Like, did you have any kind of sense there? I definitely was. That's something I I sort of underlined when I was reading through the letter, because that was a little unclear to me as well. It was, you know, and and that kind of right depends on how we're going to, I guess, litigate the situation for lack of a better word. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's possible that if if in fact the letter writer's father, you know, was present for their childhood and was a witness to the abuse that was going on at the hands of the letter writer's mom, um, you know, or just didn't do anything to protect the letter writer from the abuse, which in of itself is, you know, right, kind of an, an abuse of its own, um, mm-hmm. and certainly under the neglect umbrella. And if that were the case, then, you know, that would, I think that would sort of 
change a little bit the way I would think about this. But I was also confused by that, too, because if the letter writer's father, you know, wasn't really involved or wasn't able to be involved in in their childhood as much. Um, And really, no matter what, right, like the dad deserves to have his feelings, right? Like he can be hurt. uh, He can be and I guess disbelief of, you know, why the letter writer wouldn't necessarily want to, you know, engage in these kinds of relationships with their family. Um, but certainly if if the father was involved and, and knew firsthand what was going on and failed to act or failed to protect his kid from that, it would make even more sense to me why this would be so hurtful to the letter writer, uh, especially when they are forging their own path in terms of trying to get their own family, um, as it were. I think that's useful because I don't want to this time try to come up with like two different answers depending on how present the letter writer's father was during their childhood. So I'm just going to take what I do know and try to cobble something together out of that, which is, you know, based on what is present in this letter, they're they're reengaging a bit with their dad. So it's not necessarily like, boy, you were one of the primary like agents of abuse during my childhood. Uh, and I want to get away from you. It's something there is potentially like complicated or, you know, you potentially like let me down in ways that you shouldn't have, but we're not yeah. quite getting into the depths of that. Um, and so it's maybe more just like, I'm trying to suss out what kind of a relationship I want to have with you and that I can have with you. So letter writer, this might be an opportunity to sort of check in with yourself. And you might want to talk about this with, you know, a friend whose judgment you trust, which is just to say, you know, in some combination between in the world that we live in now and in an ideal world, what kind of relationship do I have with my father? Is it one where we're in somewhat limited contact? I'm a little protective of what I share with him. I don't have intensely emotionally vulnerable conversations with him, either because I don't trust him or because I fear that it would reopen old wounds that I just don't want to revisit. You know, if that's the case, I would probably urge you to say something like, no, thanks for letting me know. I'll try to check it out. Or no, I didn't get invited to that wedding, but I hope they have a great time. Or no, I haven't heard about their job. How's it going? And just kind of keep it light. Don't provide pushback, but don't necessarily express like robust interest either. Just, you know, yeah, a, a reasonable mix of like deflection and mild interest would probably be the safest way forward. Um, if, you know, you're re-engaging with your father and you do want to have some conversations that feel a little overdue or you want to at least try to see if you two can reckon with the past in small, manageable ways before working your way up to bigger ones, you know, in that case, if that's your goal, I would suggest saying something like, you know, Dad, I know that you often bring up your siblings and their kids and you ask me if I know what's going on with them or if I've been invited to something and it's really clear that when I say no, that makes you really sad. And I just want to acknowledge that I, I think you would like me to have a closer relationship to these people. I think that there's probably a sense of loss there. I share some of that sense of loss. Um, you know, just to start by acknowledging the the disbelief and the hurt, which is whether or not you share his working definition of like the primary importance of your blood relatives. Um, I do think you can safely and respectfully, uh, you know, acknowledge the sadness there, which makes sense to me. I think it's a reasonable sadness. And that might go a long way towards um, enabling him to then sort of like hear you out. Um, Because you can just say like, I hear that. If there's something that you want to share with me about how that has affected you, 
I'm open to talking about it, but I also want us to be able to acknowledge it so that we don't keep bumping into the surprise every time. So like if what you want is to say, I would really like you to spend some time with your cousins and I want to try to help facilitate that. Let's have that conversation. I can let you know how much of that I'm available for, but you know, I I do want to make sure that we start by like having a shared conversation about reality, which is just, we are not close yet. And I'm not sure how close we will get. Is that something you can talk about or hear about? Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think that's really um that's really sound advice. Uh I I do I do echo that. I think I think it really does depend on the kind of relationship that this person has with their dad and the level to which they feel like they have the I guess emotional energy and bandwidth to engage in that conversation and also how comfortable and how safe they might feel talking to their dad about that. Um mm-hmm. but I agree with you. I I think that if you can sort of leave the door, if it feels okay for you to leave the door open to, you know, explore how your dad is feeling, um, you know, and then share with him in whatever way you feel comfortable, the reality of, you know, what has happened to you in the past and the effect that your mom's abuse and neglect and cutting you off from your family had. And unfortunately, you know, especially if your dad was really not a part of that. It sounds like his family was kind of collateral damage in that, right? Where they, you know, you were not able to have a relationship with them where maybe you would have in a different world. And that's sad, you know? And and certainly, like I said before, and like Danny has said, like, your dad is totally allowed to be hurt. He's, He's allowed to feel the way he feels, right? Just like you are. However, you know, his hurt and his disbelief doesn't get to dictate how you feel and the choices that you make. And that's a hard thing about families and and any relationship is that um, oftentimes I think we feel like, well, this person is hurt by what I'm doing or not doing. They're sad. They're upset by what I'm doing. Therefore, I have to change my behavior. Um, right. And that's not always the case. You know, you, you still have uh, a choice to, you know, not be close with your biological family. And, and, and again, I want, I also want to say, I'm really, really happy that you are focusing on your own healing, that you left this abusive home, that you forged your own family. Um, chosen families are families. They are just as valuable, just as important, sometimes way more important and valuable and safe and comforting um, than the families that we are born into. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, your dad, unfortunately, may never accept how important your chosen family is to you. He may never, um, understand that to you that is more important than the people who you share DNA with. Um, you know, it sounds like, like you said, you've given him a lot of space and opportunity to know these people and to become associated with them, to become intimate with them in some way. And it sounds like maybe he's not okay with that or he's not ready to do that. Um, and again, that doesn't change what you get to do. Does that make sense to you? It very much does. And I wonder if there lies some more opportunity, you know, letter writer, you don't say how you have phrased it, but I really think it's worth it in that kind of situation to say, you know, dad, I have tried to introduce you to these people before. I, I really want you to know, like these five people are really important to me. It means a lot to me that you know who they are. Um, and so, you know, a, a, again, to kind of say like, to, to treat him in the way that you would like to be treated, which is not to say like, I need you to be incredibly close with these people, but I do want you, since you are relating to me right now, to know and affirm the sort of basic important people in my life. 
much as it seems like I think he's asking that of you in his own way. And I yeah. do think both of those things are possible without, you know, you agreeing, yep, I'm going to get really close with my cousins or him saying, yep, I'm going to get really close with your chosen family. Like for you to just say these, you know, four or five or however many people are really, really, you know, they are my family in a lot of ways. And I want you to know their names and get a chance to know them. I don't need you to become best friends with them, but it is important to me that you remember these names and then to not to do it in like a quid pro quo, like I'll call my cousins if you learn, you know, Ben's name, but to, to try to figure out how can you to respect and affirm your commitments to your own families without then saying, I now share that same commitment. Like you can, I think, respect your father's connection to his siblings and their kids and express some interest and have some conversations about and possibly with them um, without necessarily going just along with his sort of sadness and saying like, they're going to be my new best friends. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. My last thought there is just, if that conversation with your father goes well, you might want to ask like, part of me feels unsure about how even to go about talking to these people because I haven't talked to them since 1992 when I was a little kid. And so I think I I feel a little bit like, do I just call? Would you potentially help facilitate some kind of, you know, low-key conversation where we can get to know each other a little bit better so that again, the onus isn't just like on you to go about recreating these relationships out of thin air? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can certainly imagine like, you know, okay, these are people I haven't seen since I was, I'm assuming the letter writers in their 30s, so a small child. And how, even if you wanted to uh, reconnect with these people, how overwhelming it would feel to be like, okay, so literally what do I do here? (laughs) Like, how do do I reach these people? Are they going to think it's weird? Um, You know, there's so many questions on the other side too that are difficult. But I I like what you said, Danny, about sort of drawing the parallels between it sounds like what the father wants and what the letter writer wants, because both of them are saying, these people are important to me. Um, I want you to acknowledge these people. I want you to feel um, in some way like the same way that I do, right? Or at least share the understanding of that. And I think that that's particularly painful on both sides. So, yeah, I I think, you know, again, if, if this person feels comfortable being somewhat vulnerable with their dad and sort of explaining, um, you know, and you don't, I don't mean explain like this is exactly what happened and walk him through the last 30 years of history, but just sort of like reiterating, you know, my childhood did a number on me. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, unfortunately, like I was not able to have relationships with my family, whether or not I wanted to. Um, and I have, you know, a lot of my healing has taken place in the form of, moving forward without getting back into all that stuff, without kind of diving into relationships I'm not sure I am capable of or want to have, um, and making those family relationships where I feel the safest. Yeah. I think all that's great. And my last thought there is just, I think that is a much better approach than saying, I don't care about my cousins, just because I don't think you should say that letter writer. Um, You can absolutely say, you know, I don't prioritize these relationships in the same way that you do, or, you know, we may never become very close. But I do think you should try to at least care in the sense of, you know, there are people that your father cares about, and he wants you to at least acknowledge that. Again, if you find you have these conversations and what he wants from you is just too much and he's really pushing it, you could absolutely scale back. At that point, you might need to, you know, bring out the I don't care language. But 
leave that in reserve because I do think that would be unnecessarily alienating. Absolutely. And I say that as someone who doesn't give a shit about my cousins. Um, (laughs) I fuck my cousins. They are fuck his assholes. You heard it here first. Yeah. You you hear it here often. I will take us into the second letter. Anytime I start talking about my family of origin, it's time to hustle. The subject (laughs) is Lonely Island. I'm a healthy woman in my 40s with a teenage daughter and a husband of 15 years. I have a full-time job that's pretty good. I have benefits, flexibility, the chance to telecommute, and it's almost enough money. I even own my house on an island. But I find myself crying whenever nobody can see me, the kind of crying that makes you shake and that's impossible to stop. I also have intrusive suicidal thoughts regularly. I've been to therapy numerous times, both because I experienced child sexual abuse and because I relied on self-medication slash substance abuse in the past. So is my partner. For me, the substance abuse is over. For him, at least right now, it isn't. He relapsed during the pandemic. I've come to a basic acceptance that he'll get clean when he's ready. I still love him, although he's mostly unavailable emotionally and financially. I try to protect our daughter as much as I can. He's not allowed to use at home. Our daughter is mostly a joy, even though parenting can be a lot sometimes, and she's also just starting ADHD medication. I guess this last year has been a lot of a lot, if that makes sense. My deepest sadness seems to be about friends here in my hometown. I feel like I could handle my problems better if I had closer friends. Many lifelong friends have moved back to the island, which should be great, but the lines seem to have been redrawn. Mostly my friends are child-free by choice, and they go boating, beaching, and dinner partying together. I'm rarely invited. I have occasional contact with them, but not enough. I know I should make other friendships, but how? I live on an island of fewer than a thousand people. I own a home here that I can afford. If I sold, I'd never be able to buy anywhere else. This is where my extended family is. So I don't feel I can leave my home, husband, island, or family. How then do I reintegrate myself within the group? And if these friends don't want me around now, why even try? I feel like whining to them, why don't you like me anymore? Am I boring? I can be fun. I feel so stuck, so lonely, and also like I'm being a big baby about this. Do I just need SSRIs? Hmm. Uh, Well, I do just want to throw it out there real quick that no one just needs SSRIs. So (laughs) um, SSRIs are great. Uh, I take one myself. Uh, I find them to be incredibly helpful for a lot of reasons. And also, they are not uh, just what everyone needs. And they're not the only thing that you need. So, I just yeah. I just wanted to first say that because I feel like that's the only question. That's, like, the main question that's been asked right at the end, right? And I'm like, yeah, but there's so much else. There's a lot going on here. Right. And I think especially because the letter writer mentions that she has intrusive suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. um, you know, SSRIs, depending upon the SSRI and how it interacts with your own particular um, mental health issues, that you know, that's a place to tread carefully and, and to try to find a doctor and or a psychiatrist who can really carefully and personally work with you. Because in some instances, certain SSRI medications can exacerbate suicidal thoughts, not yeah. often. And, and not always, but um, it's definitely something to be aware of. That, uh, that was the thing I sort of wanted to address before we get into some of the other issues, just because intrusive suicidal thoughts can get pretty hairy pretty quickly. 
that's definitely something where I would encourage the letter writer to talk to a doctor and or a therapist and or a psychiatrist urgently if she hasn't done so already. Absolutely. If none of those things are or feel immediately available to start with the National Suicide Hotline, that that would be my first point of order, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I just think there's so much uh, in this letter. There's so much going on. There's so much jumping out at me. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, from a safety standpoint, from a an urgent standpoint, I totally echo what Danny just said. You know, uh, you have to look out for your safety. You know, intrusive suicidal thoughts are so, so challenging to manage. You know, a lot of people experience them. They are absolutely nothing to be uh, ashamed of. They are, like, I think way more common than people think that they are. And they can also be really, really scary and really overwhelming. And combined with all the other things that you are dealing with right now, uh, I really just want you to feel like you have someone to talk to, that you have someone who's looking out for your immediate medical and mental well-being and safety. Um, yeah. So yeah, the National Suicide Hotline is a really, uh, you know, it's a great resource and a pinch. And I also just want, you know, for resources sake, uh, you know, if if you are not, uh, I would say, in an immediate crisis, but you really want to talk to someone, um, particularly someone who has lived experience with mental health concerns, um, NAMI has a directory online of a warm line, which is uh, similar to a hotline, except it's not necessarily meant for times of crisis. It's more talking to someone peer-to-peer, uh, so to speak, someone who has lived experience with um, mental illness, uh, like depression or suicidal thoughts. And you can find warm lines that are state-to-state, uh, -state, so they'll tell you exactly who you can call in which states, um, which, which hours they're operated by, um, you know, when you can call. So, Mm -hmm. If you just Google NAMI warm line, that's N-A-M-I warm line, um, the first thing that pops up, you'll find uh, a PDF of state-by-state. State. Um, warm lines are really, really awesome. Uh, they mm -hmm. are staffed by people who have been there, um, you know, who know a lot about the types of experiences that you might be going through. Um, and if you're interested in that, it can be a really helpful resource if you just feel like, I don't have anyone to talk to in this moment. I'm not in immediate danger, but I just, I really need to get something off my chest or hear someone else's voice. Um, that can be really helpful. Thank you so much. I also Googled that and it popped up for me right away. So yeah. uh, I, I can confirm uh, that it's there. and <laughs> It's um, real. That's yeah. really helpful. Because I also, you know, I want to be careful too, because the letter writer says, I have intrusive suicidal thoughts. And I'm also aware that that's not always the same thing as like, I have a plan and I'm thinking about carrying it out. And so I don't want to treat the letter writer as as like a some sort of a flight risk or like, oh my gosh, we can't talk about anything else. We just have to deal with that. Um, oh yeah. And especially definitely. when it comes to disclosing to either medical or mental health professionals, letter writer, um, if it is true that you do not currently like have immediate plans to harm yourself, to lead with that just so they can kind of have a context of like where you're at if you are at all worried about, well, if I disclose this, you know, what what if I were to get, you know, potentially involuntarily committed, which I can really understand is something you would want to avoid, letter writer. So um, certainly, again, only if that is the case. I'm not um, saying to say that if that's not true, because if it's not true, you will want different kinds of help. But that is something to to bear in mind. You know, there's so much going on here, both between personal feelings of self-worth, 
friendships, personal relationship, marriage relationship. I'm, I'm not quite sure like what to tackle next. I think, you know, letter writer, it does seem really clear that a big part of what's causing you such distress right now is the sense of, I don't have friends that I'm close enough to, to share my like serious, serious, like grief and fear with. So it makes a lot of sense that you feel the sense of like, I think I could handle a lot of this better if I could just talk to somebody I care about. And so I would encourage you to, you know, without like handing this exact letter to those friends to maybe give one of them a call and just say, I really love seeing you. I would love to see more of you. Um, I would love to like get together one-on-one and kind of talk. I'm kind of going through it right now and I would love to be able to talk to you about it. You know, I know we've mostly just been getting dinner or, or occasionally meeting up at the same party, but you know, I could really use some support right now. Are you around for that? Um, so that you're going in, not sort of hoping like maybe they'll invite me to a party and if it comes up, we can discuss it. But so within like certain limitations without like exposing yourself or being completely vulnerable, you can kind of let them know, like, I, I really need to talk, you know, with somebody one-on-one. Can you do that? I think that would potentially put you in a better position because then at least it doesn't sound like right now any of your friends know that you are lonely or isolated or struggling. And, um, I hope that they will respond well if they do know. Yeah, I I definitely uh, totally agree with that. I I think um, it's tough because I think uh, if you are in a place like this where you are feeling super lonely, super depressed, super just isolated by yourself, any perceived uh, grouping of people where you feel like left out can just feel like really terrible because you're already in such a tight place, uh, just feeling really like turned inward. And I think it almost like confirms uh, or or seems to confirm what we're afraid of, which is that we're going to be alone or that people don't want to be around us. Um, Mm -hmm. And letter writer, I would, you know, I would venture to guess that that might not be the case. You know, like Danny said, there's a really good chance that your friends just have absolutely no idea what you're going through. You know, there's a chance that maybe and whether this is right or wrong, they might think, oh, she's really busy with, uh, you know, her kid or with, you know, your job or things like that. And maybe they feel like they, sh- you know, they shouldn't bother you. Not that that's necessarily what's going on, but it's a possibility, you know, but I, I think what you're just really seeking right now is connection and support. Um, and I'm noticing too, you know, based on what you said in your letter that, you love your husband dearly, but you feel like he's unavailable emotionally um, and also financially. But the emotional piece seems to be sort of echoed in what's going on with the friend dynamics. So it's not surprising to me that the friendships also feel so fraught right now because you're not really getting the emotional intimacy and connection from your spouse, uh, which is pretty huge, especially because you live on a small island with fewer than a thousand people. You're a mom. Um, you have a teenager who's going through her own struggles. You have a history of substance use and severe trauma. Your husband is actively, uh, you know, having some serious substance use issues. Man, it is like not surprising to me in the slightest that you are struggling right now. And I'm really sorry that you're going through so much. It is so hard to manage that as it is. But when you also just don't feel like you have support from anybody, um, it can feel pretty crushing. So, you know, I I really 
really encourage you to try to reach out to these friends and to be a little bit vulnerable yeah. about how you're feeling. You don't have to go into every little detail about what's going on, but just to, you know, just say, like, I'm in the shit right now. Like, things are hard. Um, I would just really love to see you. Um, and maybe it's just that you don't, you know, you're not interested in going to a party right now. You're not interested in going on a booze cruise or whatever. Like, you just want to, like, have lunch with a friend. Yeah. Or you might want to go to one of those dinner parties after you've kind of made that one-on-one connection yeah. and shared a little bit about how you're doing. Definitely. I, I think letter writer, sometimes if you're feeling really, again, like preemptively rejected or isolated, there's that fear of, well, they're kind of more clustering around each other than they are around me. If I were to share something vulnerable, they would reject me further. Yeah. Um, and I I hope that that's not the case. I don't think I, I hope that that's not what happens. It seems to me like your friends are not like trying to exclude you. They just really don't know that you're going through it. So I, I do think there's reason to hope that if you do get in touch with them, you know, one-on-one or two-on-one or in smaller groups and let them know, um, again, not trying to rely exclusively on one member of the group or or to to share everything all at once if that feels too overwhelming. But I do think if you let them know, you know, I'd like to see you more often. I miss you. I would like to be invited to more things, even if I can't always make it. I'd like to occasionally invite you out to coffee mm-hmm. um, and and I need some support and I hope that you can provide me with some. You know, I, I think you have reason to be hopeful that you will be able to get more there. Um, in addition to that, you know, letter writer, I don't know if there are Al-Anon meetings on your island. If there are, please go to them. If there aren't, um, you know, a lot of Zoom meetings for AA and Al-Anon have sprung up throughout the pandemic. I would really encourage you to start going. I don't know the, you know, I don't know your your husband's drug of choice or drugs of choice. I don't know how serious his use is. I realize there can be, you know, a lot of variety there. I want to say this really lovingly and gently. Um, he might not get clean. You know, you say you've come to acceptance that he'll get clean when he's ready. I think what you may mean there is like, I won't be the one who convinces him to that has to come from within, which makes sense to me, but he might not get ready. Not everybody does get clean again. Not every relapse ends in, you know, renewed sobriety. And so that's something that you will need to think about as well as he's not allowed to use at home, you know, without without sounding um, cynical, you know, as somebody who's well into be eight years next week, sober for myself, he might very well be using at home. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, usually if somebody is in an active relapse and you set up rules for that person, don't be surprised when that person breaks those rules and lies about it. That's part of relapse often, not always, but often. So I, I would just say don't, don't assume that he is currently in a position where he can actually abide by that. And so it might be time to, you know, also talk to some of your family members if any of them can offer you support. I realize probably part of you feels like if I talk about his relapse, it'll cause him shame and that will make it harder for him to get sober. If any of that's occurring to you, I hope you can let that go. You need support right now. You're not like taking out advertisements in the local paper saying like he's on drugs, but for you to seek out the support that you need while he's using is more important than like trying to protect his reputation. And, you know, again, you say you try to protect your daughter as much as you can. If that looks like we have a rule that he doesn't use at home and then we try not to talk about it, 
I would encourage you to reassess some of that protection in part because it may be that you need to have him not live at home for a while. Again, I'm not suggesting that that's obviously the case. That's just maybe. And, and also, you know, like, does he abuse the type of stimulants that your daughter is getting for ADHD? Like that was my first thought. Like, again, I just, I remember being an addict, like, you know, if I were using and somebody living in my house had the kind of pills that I liked, I would totally steal them and I would lie about it because that's, you know, that's how you keep getting the stuff that you need. So again, not to say like, he's definitely swiping your kid's pills. He's definitely using in the basement right now, but both of those things are real possibilities. So you may need to protect your daughter by physically separating them. And you may need to protect your daughter by acknowledging to your daughter verbally that your husband is relapsing. I don't know if you've had that conversation. I don't know if you've told her, you know, like I have you, cause she might be feeling a little crazy herself if it's like, uh, my dad has started using drugs again and we're just not talking about it. That makes me feel nuts. Yeah, I think I'm nodding furiously for people <laughs> for people other than Danny who can't see. But um, yeah, all of that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I also definitely had that thought too. And, and again, I don't want to say that you know your husband's drug of choice or stimulants or anything like that. But um, yeah, having that stuff in the house uh, when your daughter's prescribed it, that can be really tough if that is in fact something that he uses. I think, you know, like Danny said, the priorities here have to be protecting yourself and your kid um, and also protecting your recovery. You know, and, and I hear you say, like, for me, substance abuse is over. That's wonderful. I, I want to congratulate you on sobriety um, or what type of sobriety means to you. That is, like, really amazing with everything you're going through as well. But I, I really, I, I think the time has come to both protect your daughter and also acknowledge that she's a teenager. Um, and she probably knows a lot more than you think she does. I think oftentimes kids know a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, you know, as a as a child of someone who struggled with substance use for a very, very long time, um, even if you don't have the language for it, right, or you don't quite know how to explain it, you know when something's off. You know when something isn't isn't right. And if, you know, you say your daughter's a teenager, I don't know if she's, that means she's 13 or 18 or what have you. That's a big range. Right, but right. she clearly is old enough, I think, to have some information in an age-appropriate way about what's going on with her dad. And I do think that, like Danny said, the time may come, the time already may have come, where it's just simply not safe for your husband to be in the home right now um, for you or for your kid. And that's painful. And I don't I don't mean to say that, like, you need to kick him out today or you need to just, you know, pull the plug on that because that might not be the situation. You know the situation more than we do. Um, yeah. But I think protecting yourself and your daughter has to come first. And I don't in any way mean to say that, oh, of course you're going to relapse or this must be so triggering for you because it, it very well might not be. And it sounds like you are really stable in your recovery from substances, which, again, is amazing. Um, but just mm -hmm. know that... With everything else that's going on for you, you know, the depression that you're feeling, um, this stuff can come up, you know, even if you're not feeling like, oh, I'm going to relapse, um, it can bring up a lot of old emotions. It can bring up a lot of shit from the past. So just make sure that you are taking care of yourself as a priority, um, that you are turning to people where you can, because you really deserve that. And so is your daughter. Um, you both need a lot of love and support right now because this is an incredibly yeah. tough situation. I'm really sorry for 
everything that you're going through because you said it's a lot of a lot. It's so much at once. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is a lot of a lot. All caps. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I am too. And letter writer, I realize we've just handed you what might feel like a sort of laundry list of like eight overwhelming things to do all at once. And so I hope, you know, if necessary, you can just take it little piece by little piece. And again, based on your husband's behavior when he's using, you know, you say he's financially unavailable. I don't know what else that entails, but, you know, if your general sense is like, this is in some ways self-destructive and in a lot of ways financially destructive, but I don't think it's at the level of needing to be separate. You you don't have to separate yourself. And saying something like, we can't live together while you're using is not the same thing as saying, I'm divorcing you, get out forever, I hate you. It is sometimes truly just like, I love you. I can't co-parent with you when you are using. You need to find, you know, I, I hope that you go to either like rehab or inpatient or something to, you know, get help getting sober again. But if not, the next best thing we can do is you got to find someplace else to stay. And again, you're going to want and need help and support from friends and family in order to potentially take that step. Um, and so I would encourage you, talk to your friends, talk to your relatives, go to Al-Anon meetings, possibly take your teenager to some Alateen meetings. Um, that might be useful and necessary for her. Also talk to your doctor. Also talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist if possible. Also call a warm line if you can. You don't have to do any of this immediately. You don't have to do it all on the same day. Do what you feel capable of doing and ask for help when you don't feel capable. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm pulling for you. I hope that when you speak up and reach out that a lot of hands are waiting to help carry you. Yeah, definitely. Sending you a lot of love. It's a hard situation. I do have a fun update from a listener that I'm going to read Ooh. before you and I just chat a little bit. Um, that will be nice. And again, you know, move us a little bit out of the heaviness. So this is just a, an untitled update. A few months ago, I couldn't get my heart rate or blood pressure under control. After running a lot of tests, my doctor suggested that it might be anxiety. I had several follow-up appointments where I tried to just will myself into having a lower heart rate instead of facing that anxiety. Then you said something on your show that really struck me. You said that one of the things anxiety sometimes does is try to convince you there's no possible way to get better. And that thought can keep you from trying things that might help. Since then, I've started going to therapy, I've started medication, and I've even started meditating. At my last appointment, my blood pressure was much better and my pulse was normal. Thank you so much. Wow, you love to see it. That is lovely. You really just, yeah, yeah. that's delightful. Yeah, and not to say that any one or all of those things is like the thing you do with anxiety and then you're done forever. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm just really, really glad, letter writer, that you thought, I'll try throwing a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. And, you know, I'm also really, uh, I, I suppose proud would be the word that you kept going back to the doctor even when you were feeling kind of stuck and, and kind of uncertain. I think that can be really difficult. Uh, especially if you feel sort of stymied or at odds with your with your medical team. So just good on you as well for like going back and doing more tests and saying like, no, it's really important to me to treat my blood pressure and heart rate. And I want to find out what else I can do to take care of myself. So um, yeah, thank you so much for letting us know. I love updates. I wish it was nothing but updates. <laughs> 
Uh, I wish I got five years of updates after having five years of questions. Yeah, that is, uh, that's pretty awesome. Anxiety is very sneaky and can present in a million different ways. And it's not fun. I was trying to think of if there's like any way that I could spin it into being fun. But no, I think you're right. It's just mostly not <laughs> yeah. fun. You yeah. like feeling like shit all day long. You'll love anxiety. <laughs> if you love whirling and whirling in circles and going nowhere, have I got a <laughs> mental health issue for you? <laughs> yeah. Delightful. I like the idea of trying to advertise various like um, just like struggles that you could have. Like, have you considered, you know, just for fun? <laughs> giving self-loathing a try. <laughs> uh, it can be a great motivator. How do you not. think my career works? That's that's all I do is just advertise all the terrible things you could be feeling. I, I actually don't know how being a social worker works. <laughs> I have a general sense of like clipboards. Oh yeah, nothing but clipboards. And resources. Like th- that's my sense is like resources, clipboards. That's really it. Question that's, mark? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh Anything else? Is that no. it? I have a master's in clipboards and resources, and that's it. <laughs> Nothing else to report. Do the clipboards have the little pen already threaded through the little clip part at the top? And it's like attached with like a gross shoelace that um, someone found. And it's a bad pen that keeps uh, leaking and or just not writing. That's social work for you. I love that. Ever since I started transitioning, my exposure to clipboards with pens threaded through them just skyrocketed. (laughs) So uh, if anyone out there is listening and you've been kind of on the fence about possibly transitioning, I just want you to know you're going to get access to so many clipboards. You're also going to get asked a lot to stay on the line for an extra 10 minutes uh, to go through a survey about how this particular clinic can serve you better. Good grief. If nothing else, you're going to get those two things. I can't promise you you're going to get like HRT or help, (laughs) but you will get clipboards and requests to fill out surveys. Yeah, Yeah. all the good things in life, right? Do you ever um, assign people surveys? You know, not by choice, really. Um, uh, You know, right now I work for uh, an agency. So, you know, sometimes uh, we do uh, like client satisfaction surveys or things like that that we're required to give out. Um, But no, I per, perhaps I should give out more surveys. Sometimes it's helpful to get, you know, a little bit more information about how things are going. But I prefer the survey of like, you know, getting to know someone and going step by step about how things are going, checking in while we're, uh, you know, working together instead of just like, well, now we've social worked. So uh, what do you have to say to me about it? <laughs> um, as much as I love a clipboard, I don't know if, you know, that's the way to go about it. Is this socially working for you? <laughs> if no, lie to me. I'm, I'm sorry. That is not how I operate. I, I, I do think, clear. though, it's, it's important to bear in mind that, like, not always, but sometimes lying is an option that is available to us. Totally. And it's certainly possible to lie too much uh, or to bad effect. But sometimes, every once in a while, a lie is just like, hmm. Perfectly ripe cantaloupe. Just what you need. Yeah, I'm doing a little chef's kiss right now. Like sometimes, yeah, sometimes, you know, there there are times and places for lies, I suppose. As you often say, life is a rich tapestry. And um, it's true. I think just what's nice about it is very much like a cantaloupe. Most of the time, it's not good. Every so often, <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. And you're like, oh, this is going to solve my problem. See, I maintain oh, this is delicious. that watermelon is the only good melon. So I don't share your 
opinion, but I respect it. I just don't really like cantaloupe. I love a watermelon. Yeah. It, you know, one month out of the year, there are good little cantaloupes and they are uh, as unlike the kind of cantaloupe you would get, you know, at a grocery store or at a restaurant as sardines are from gravy, which is an expression that I have just invented <laughs> and isn't very good. Um, Actually, it's great. All of which is to say, sometimes I love to lie. Uh, one of these days I will reveal <laughs> one of my favorite situations to lie, but uh, I don't want to give away all my trade secrets. No, so, not. Kate, thank you so much for uh, coming and joining us once again. I am so, so glad uh, that we were able to benefit once again uh, from your experience and wisdom. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous rest thank of the day. Thank you, you too. This was delightful. I really appreciate you having me back on. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I have, in my own various careers, had a couple of different jobs where every once in a while I just didn't get paid. And I would feel so like, uh, who do I talk to about that? (laughs) Where do I get just money, so like, please? Yeah. Hey, I I hate that I'm the one bringing this up. <laughs> Normally, I get paid on Fridays. Didn't last week. Been <laughs> been working a couple of shifts this week. What's what's going on? And there's always that like, oh, gee, wow, that's weird. <laughs> it's just like, why am I bringing this to your attention? Yeah, that is not a great place to be. This has not happened to me so 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 very many times that I've had to develop a strategy. But one thing that I at least blessedly got better at was. Uh, if it was five o'clock on the day I normally get, got paid and I hadn't gotten paid, we had that talk right away. I did not tentatively wait over the weekend to bring it up. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.